Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Well, so far we've uh, geared up, we've made a battle plan, we've loaded weapons with our observation, correlation, and meditation, and this morning what we want to do is it's finally time to uh, begin the battle, assaulting the enemy. This is where you're, you're really understanding the text, and this is what we're going to look at is interpretation, information, and meditation. And like last time, I'm going to walk through interpretation and information in Psalm 23. Then I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to take apart what I did. And then we'll spend the best part of our time on meditations. So first of all, interpretation. And this is where I, the, the classic saying, well, you can interpret the Bible in different ways gets flushed down the toilet. And I'll tell you why. Your interpretations are based on observation. In other words, you can reverse engineer them. An interpretation is not an opinion about a text. That is not an interpretation. An opinion about a text is an opinion about a text, but it is not interpretation. Interpretation is built on a foundation. And so our interpretation can't just jump to weird conclusions that aren't connected to my observations and my previous study. That's inappropriate and that's not uh, relevant. We're going to revisit our observations and cross-references and definitions. And what we're going to do is combine them and synthesize them because what you've seen in your observations is that themes begin to come out. If you'll take the time in your pericope in three, four, five verses to do 50, 75, 100, um, 200 observations. And yes, that's possible if you include all the definitions and everything. And then if you take this glorious tool that I know some of you are not familiar with, they're called highlighters. There's these amazing pen-like things that are different colors. And if you'll simply take a highlighter and, say, pick the four top themes, you'll find that your observations begin to bubble to the top with some major themes. That's what forms your interpretation. So I'll give you some synthesized statements. I'm just going to do a few, and I've, I've named them. Uh, the first one I'll call the House of Yahweh combination. So out of all the observations we did, here's the synthesis of the House of Yahweh. David will be in the House of Yahweh forever. For David, the House of Yahweh is synonymous with the temple, implying that there will be a temple or a dwelling place of God accessible to him for all time. This is confirmed by the future temple of Ezekiel 40 through 48 and the eternal all-encompassing dwelling of God in the final state where no temple is necessary because all creation is the temple. All this is made possible by God's loving kindness, His covenant love, and His grace. Those are all the things about house of Yahweh put together into one statement. How about one we'll call comfort and courage combination? The comfort and courage combination that David is in need of comfort and courage But since David will be in the house of Yahweh forever, 
the fearful time and the need for comfort in time of trouble is temporary. The overall feel of the psalm is one of patient calm rather than than urgency. The verbs in verses 1 through 3 show that the calm is due to God's actions toward David. He makes me. He leads me. He restores. He guides. The restoring of David's soul comes from the revelation of God, the Word of God, Psalm 19.7, which returns David to the place of peace and spiritual equilibrium, recapturing his trust in the Lord. I don't know if you've noticed, all I've done is copied and pasted from my observations and put the ones that go together together because now you've strengthened your argument layer upon layer upon layer of truth that all synthesize down to a very clear argument. How about this one? It's one of my favorites, the green pastures combination. Pictures such as lying down in green pastures suggest contentment, safety, joy, peace, rising above fear and spiritual danger. A green pasture is indicative of plenty and provision. Mark's gospel uses this reference in Mark 6.29 that Jesus gave safety, comfort, and provision to the people seated on the green grass by the Sea of Galilee when he fed the 5,000. He was a shepherd to the sheep. Observations all put together. How about the courage in the presence of evil combination? Slightly different than comfort and courage. Courage in the presence of evil. There are cause and effect relationships in verse 4 that because you are with me, I fear no evil. The evil in verse 4 is contrasted with God's goodness in verse 6. And although David is in a place of deep shadow and darkness and gloom for him, uh, which is a scary place, the presence of God is the factor which drives away fear. Observations put together in one topic. And the overflowing cup combination. One of the greatest pictures in this psalm. That the wine cup is a picture of abundance that can't be emptied before being filled again. The cup in scripture can represent blessing and it can represent a trial to be endured. A bitter drink to be consumed. Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane that the cup of suffering might be removed from him. But because he was faithful to drink the cup of suffering, my cup of blessing in Christ overflows. Those observations all brought together. Those are just samples of synthesizing your observations. Ideally, you ought to be able to work through all your observations and group them all together. And when you have a few kind of stragglers at the end that don't seem to fit anywhere, then that tells you that those were not as important. Does that make sense? It's a very clear process. Now, by the time you do this, this text is imprinted in your heart and mind. It, it's a part of who you are because you've gone through it so many times. And now you can take those synthesized statements, those interpretive statements, and you can boil it down even farther to a, a short interpretive statement or a purpose statement for the whole text. This takes into account the context, combining your observations into interpretive statements. So taking everything we've done over the last three sessions and boiling it down, I boiled it down to two sentences. Psalm 23, the second of the three kingly messianic psalms of Psalms 22 through 24, highlights the overflowing goodness of God as David's shepherd king who leads him in spiritual peace and calm in the midst of spiritual enemies. That's first sentence. It's a long one, but it's one sentence. Second sentence, the promise of the goodness of God following David all the way to his final dwelling place with God is the dramatic high point of David's hope. Now, that's an interpretation, but it's not an opinion because I can go back and show you 24 observations, three questions, 10 definitions, um, uh, uh, several uh, other informational factors that we came up with that all point to this. 
So being able to deconstruct or reverse engineer your interpretation tells you that you're solid in your interpretation. And that gives you great confidence in, in what you're doing. So this is not an opinion. I didn't read Psalm 23 once and then come up with this. We studied our way through it. Now we could stop right there and that would be a great uh, method for interpretation. But I want to give you two added bonuses for interpretation. I think these are both very important. First of all, there are gospel implications from our study of Psalm 23. Gospel implications. There's several of them. There's an implied contrast between the faithful and the lost person. The overall context of Psalms, which is headed by Psalm 1, is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and Psalm 23 continues that theme. For David, Yahweh is a shepherd, he shall not want, then all the other blessings that are described. But for the one for whom God is not your shepherd, not your savior, not your king, you shall want. You shall want for spiritual life. You shall not experience the spiritual blessings of the green pastures and the quiet waters. You shall not have your soul restored unless it is in salvation. It's another gospel implication. David also speaks of being in the presence of his enemies, which are also the enemies of God, but It's very clear if God is not your shepherd and savior, you are the enemy of God. There's no such thing as a neutral human being. Either either God is your shepherd or you are God's enemy. Another implication for the one who rejects God as shepherd and savior, his goodness and loving kindness will not pursue you. Death and spiritual darkness will pursue you until you dwell away from and outside the house of Yahweh forever. And then one more gospel implication. For the one who receives God as shepherd and savior, salvation is secured and assured. Verse 6 makes it clear that David is absolutely certain of his eternal destiny. Does the entire Bible teach assurance of salvation? It does. So those are gospel implications. And I'll talk to you about, about dealing with those here in a bit. But there's a second bonus idea to interpretation. And that is, what do you learn theologically... What do you learn theologically? And I boil this down to just two areas of theology. I think the most important ones that are applicable to us. Theology of God and the theology of mankind. So what do we learn about God from Psalm 23? I gave you a short list here. God chose his own description. That's important. We don't choose how to describe God. He chooses his own description. God pictures himself as a shepherd This is the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. This is God's description of Himself. God is the initiator. God's the primary character in the life of the believer, not the believer himself. God is the initiator of making David lie down in green pastures, leading him beside quiet waters. We learn this truth. God is eternal, and He extends eternity to His own. The theoretical question has often been asked, would it be worth it to be a Christian even if you went out of existence, if you were annihilated at your death? That's an, that's an inane and insane question because the very fact of God's eternity combined with His love leads Him to extend eternity in love to those that He chooses. God is utterly sovereign. Psalm 23 guarantees that David need fear no evil. 
God will allow and even lead David into the presence of danger, spiritual enemies, because God is providentially working, even using painful circumstances. You notice this? He leads me beside quiet waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He guides me. And also, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who brought him into the presence of his enemies? God did. That's sovereignty. And then we learn that God is concerned with his own glory. He's concerned with his own glory. The leading of David into the paths of righteousness is for the sake of the name, the reputation of God. That's the central focus in many ways. So that's what we learn about God. What do you learn about yourself? What do you learn about mankind? Anthropology, if you want to be technical. We learn that mankind is spiritually powerless. We're powerless against the forces of evil, and only by the presence of God is evil to not be feared. We learn that mankind is completely dependent on God for spiritual peace. God must be your shepherd. He makes you lie down. He leads you beside quiet waters. He restores your soul. You are completely dependent on Him. You can't conjure spiritual peace. We learn that the ultimate hope of mankind is to dwell with God. That's what we desire. We desire to dwell with God by submitting to Him as Savior and Shepherd. And those who submit to Him will have that hope realized. And conversely, we also learn that those who reject God and don't want to dwell with Him forever will also have their wishes realized. The judgment of the lost is entirely just. They're getting what they want. They're receiving what they wished for. And one more thing we learn about mankind, the battle for spiritual peace happens in my mind and in communion with God. So the pursuit of internal peace and joy is what, what constitutes real contentment, not change in circumstances. There's no prayer for change in circumstances in Psalm 23. It's just a list of the blessings in the midst of difficulty. So that's interpretation. And I wanted to give you those two bonuses about uh, the second bonus, or the first one rather, gospel implications, and the second one, theology that you learn about God and about man. And I'm going to unpack that here in a bit. But information, information, I'm just going to add a few more tidbits to our study that I didn't gather from observation, from definitions, from uh, all the other steps. Just some helpful details that enrich your study and provide answers to some unanswered questions. I'm just going to give you four or five tidbits that I thought were interesting and were helpful. Just a few examples. The first one. The fact that God leads David in the path of righteousness has salvation implications. And that's something that I read from an author that that takes Psalm 23 very, very seriously as far as a salvation testimony psalm. That God must do the leading, and this leading is all the way to His eternal dwelling. That the path of righteousness is more than just a pathway through life, but it's a pathway to the end of life. And so it actually has implications for Calvinism, not to draw everything to there, but uh, who started this process? God did. Who's going to end it? God will. Another tidbit, the theological key to Psalm 23 is to understand that the psalm is God-centered. That's the key. That all the beautiful spiritual benefits David experiences are only as his total focus is upward. That's it, on God's character, on God's actions, on God's promises. It's a third little tidbit. 
the shadow of death fits the shepherd metaphor. You remember one of the questions I asked is, I wonder if David was thinking back to his days as a shepherd boy when he wrote this. Well, I'm going to answer that question now. Yes, because the valley of the shadow of death is a nickname for valleys and ravines that shepherds would take their sheep through where, uh, where varmints and predators could be hiding where? In the shadows. And these ravines with these deep shadows were the most dangerous places for the sheep. To David as a shepherd, this picture is a vivid one and he remembers actual places that for, for his sheep were the valley of the shadow of death. There's a fourth tidbit. The way of the wilderness and the valley is not the way we would have chosen, but it is the way God has chosen. So what does that imply? That implies that to complain and push back against God because you're in a wilderness or a valley is to say, I don't want you to be sovereign. I don't want you to be in charge. David's solution was to commune with God in the midst of his spiritual enemies, not to beg for escape. What a great prayer this would be. Lord, would you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies? Where, oh, look, that's right there in the text. His walk through the valley of the shadow of death was what was important. He didn't walk around it. He walked through it. That's a big difference. That's the key to biblical counseling, by the way. If you say, I want to understand biblical counseling when somebody comes to me with a, with a suffering problem. Here it is. Don't try to walk around the valley. Walk through it. That's it. What an encouraging text. And we haven't even really put it all together yet. We'll do that this afternoon. But let's reverse engineer and deconstruct what I just did. First, interpretation and then information. Interpretation, I'm going to do exactly what I just did with Psalm 23 with one little diversion I'm going to do right now. Let me give you two basic guidelines for interpretation. I've alluded to these, but I just want to be absolutely clear that interpretation is not opinion. The first guideline, you can't suddenly abandon context, grammar, history, and observations. If you're going to be honest about your interpretation, it has to lay on the foundation you've already uh, put down. For example, I shall not want. This isn't a declaration that God will give you everything you want. It's a statement that for those that God shepherds, he's in total sovereign control of their lives, even in the wilderness, even in the valley. Or, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. You can't simply skip to the idea that, well, when I'm stressed out, I should go camping. That's not what this is teaching. It's not a bad idea. It's just not what the text is teaching. So the whole point in interpretation is you're letting the text speak for itself. You're, You're simply putting together what the text has already said. And the second basic guideline, look for the clear spiritual principles brought out by your extensive observations. That's what you're looking for. What, what are the principles? What are, the, what are the, the, the bridge that I can cross over from when this psalm was written in the 9th century, 10th century uh, BC all the way to today? As you work through your observations again, these principles will emerge. Write them down. Pay attention to them. Two helpful pieces of interpretation. This is what we just did. Combine your observations into useful statements. This means going through them and finding the similarities, using the, the, the highlighter. Uh, and you can do that electronically, however you want to do it. Um, back in the day, uh, <clears throat> when I was in school, we were taught to use these little things called 3 by 5 cards. You remember those? 
where you did a research paper and you had to write one fact in the source on your cards and then what did you do with them? You put them in piles that went together. That's exactly what you're doing. You're taking all these observations and putting them in piles that fit together and that gives you strength to your argument. Those combinations are very, very useful. And then the second helpful piece that we did was taking into account your context study, synthesizing the text into an interpretive statement or two. Now, that's it. That's the whole thing. I just did how to do interpretation in about three minutes. Why? You remember the hermeneutic pyramid. The big chunk at the bottom of the pyramid is observation. That's the hard work. By the time you get to interpretation, it almost writes itself. It really should. It's just now a matter. You've gathered all the puzzle pieces. You ever done one of those giant jigsaw puzzles? What do you do? All the sky pieces over here. All the grass pieces over here. And you pile them together. So you remember our final synthesis statement, Psalm 23, the second of the three kingly messianic psalms of Psalm 22 through 24, highlights the overflowing goodness of God as David's shepherd king who leads him in spiritual peace and calm in the midst of spiritual enemies. The promise of the goodness of God following David all the way to his final dwelling place with God is the dramatic high point of David's hope. Now, before we go on to the two added bonuses for depth and connection to Scripture, let me take a little digression here. You've all heard preachers and Bible teachers, and I use that lightly in quotes, that it becomes very clear that they're giving opinions or that they're giving just a a surface analysis of a text, one that they came up with on Saturday afternoon right before going to play golf, that they spent, you know, 10 minutes on it, and you, you get that. And I'm always amazed at how men who do this, that they really try so hard to be interesting. And you get desperate because I I think as a public speaker, and I used to teach public speaking at the Master's University, I think as a public speaker, you sort of know when you're lame, if I can put it that way. You kind of know it because you go, man, I don't really have anything to offer here. So what do you start doing? Well, you start telling jokes. You start telling stories about your grandmother. Um, You start digressing all over the place all the time. I know I'm digressing right now, but I plan to do it. So it's not technically a digression. And if you boil it down, you go, you know, he crammed five minutes of content into 45 minutes. That there really isn't much content in an attempt to be pithy, to be interesting, to make a, a one or two brilliant observations in this hope that I'm going to hold on to my audience. And this is, the, this is the trap of trying to please the people that you're speaking to or that you're teaching. And this goes for your own children, your wife, or, or whatever. If instead you take the time to make these observations of the text, boil them down to interpretive statements, boil those down to one synthesis of the whole text... That grabs the heart of the true believer. That sort of detail is what we long for. Many of you here have come out of churches where you're just fed cotton candy all the time. You would never go back. You would never go back because it doesn't fill you up anymore. It it can't do it. So if if you're ever worried about, I, I, I would like to disciple my kids. I would like to teach something to my wife, but I'm scared I'll be uninteresting. Go through this and the simple act of giving truth is interesting to those who love truth. It just is. Okay, back to what we're doing. I gave you two added bonuses for depth and connection to Scripture. And I want to spend a moment on this because this is important. The first one, gospel implications. 
This is actually a huge topic of, of study and even debate. Does every text of Scripture give a direct gospel presentation? There are those who believe that. I think common sense says no. Not every text of Scripture is a direct gospel presentation. But you can assume that every text of Scripture has gospel implications and leads to gospel presentation and understanding. It leads there. I I spent a lot of years in central Texas, and there's a common saying there. If you stopped to ask somebody directions, you would say, you know, how do I get to such and such a town? Somebody would say, oh, you can't get there from here. If you think about that for a minute, that doesn't make any sense. What they mean is, I don't know where it is, so keep driving down the road and ask somebody who does know where it is. Is every text of Scripture a gospel presentation? No. Does every text of Scripture lead to the gospel? It does. Every single one. There's a road to everywhere on earth, right? So here's some questions you ask, and and I went through these in my gospel implications. Is there a comparison or contrast between the faithful and the lost? You'll find that all over the place. Is there a gospel command or principle to follow? Is there a gospel warning given or implied? Is there a direct gospel truth that I could glean from my knowledge of other passages? So finding your way to the cross in every text of Scripture is an important part of interpretation. Why is that? Because every text of Scripture is meant to lead you to the cross eventually at some point. And then what about the high theological truths present in the passage? The high theological truths. What does the text tell me about God? What does it demonstrate about mankind? And I I gave you some guidelines here to be careful about. Doctrine rests mainly on literal, not figurative language. Green pastures, figurative language, you don't make a whole theology of green pastures. You make a theology what green pastures represents. Doctrine takes into account progressive revelation. You notice that in our cross-references to Psalm 23, they all went to the New Testament where we get more information about the fact that Yahweh is our shepherd and His name is Jesus. So we get more information. Narrative and poetry is helpful to doctrine, but narrative and poetry are not the sole source of doctrine. There is no doctrine that rests solely on a story or on a poem. You confirm with other passages that are clearer. That's a general rule of thumb that if you're dealing with a less clear passage, you interpret it with more clear passages. Draw conclusions carefully and logically. You don't want to be blindfolded, throwing a dart at whatever you think it might hit. We said this last night, beware of originality. Keep the same emphasis of Scripture. And I'll give you a way uh, to help with that in a moment. And then use your observations rather than jumping to a so-called truth that you can't support with your study. Be disciplined about that. Don't jump to something that you can't go back and support. And then the two theological questions. What do I know about God? What do I know about mankind? Those are, are, are the biggest theological questions. And then just for a moment, I want to touch on information. Now you've noticed that other than checking resources for understanding the context, finding some cross-references, and understanding some key word definitions, I've pointedly avoided reading what others say about Psalm 23. I don't mind hearing how they define Yahweh, how they define green pastures, the overflowing cup, and so forth. 
But I don't want to read what anybody else says about Psalm 23 until I've been through the text and I've made an interpretation for myself. But now is the time to gather that information. And this serves several purposes. First of all, it serves as a checking principle that you didn't come up with a completely original interpretation. That's what I said a moment ago, that you beware of originality. If you're studying Psalm 23 and you come up with this final interpretive statement and no other person on planet Earth has ever come up with it, then start from scratch. And somewhere in the process, your process went awry. There's another purpose. It serves as a corrective if you came to a mistaken conclusion, but you only believe this if the author gives a compelling argument. Just because, let me tell you this, the word is is not an argument. That green pastures is or are X, Y, and Z. That's not an argument. Green pastures represent spiritual peace for these five reasons. And if your conclusion was green pastures are uh, uh, you know, an admonition that I need to water my lawn and make sure it doesn't, I don't let it go yellow in the summer. Well, that's not right. There's a third purpose for information using a commentary or two or your study Bibles. It enriches your study with the study of others. It fills in some blanks. So you put it this way. You're, you're putting together a, a, uh, a, a piece of furniture. And you've got it pretty much put together and it's, it's working pretty well. When you're reading in some commentaries or study Bibles, you're going to find, oh, I can strengthen this here. I can put a little piece here. There's two added nails and screws I can add over here. And it kind of fills in those gaps. And the fourth purpose, it provides the author's unique meditations and applications which stimulates your own thinking. That's helpful because a good author um, has had the text that he's studied and written about filter through his own life, and th- that's useful. I love reading what a text has done in someone else's life. Now, how do you pick them? Boy, that's a, that's a big old topic. In Bible Training Institute, we take a whole section of time to talk about evaluating and using commentaries, including study Bibles. Let me just give you a couple of useful reminders. First of all, resources are written by fallible human beings. Just because you trust an author does not make him infallible. <clears throat> um, I received an email a few years ago that uh, said that, you know, you disagree with John MacArthur on this particular point. Are you willing to repent of that? That's <laughs> like, John MacArthur is a, the greatest teacher, Bible teacher in a hundred years, but he's not infallible. And by the way, my point of disagreement was so tiny that it's not even worth thinking about. Um, but I, I get that question as a pastor all the time. What authors do you trust? Well, none of them. They're all fallible. There are ones I trust more than others because they have a better, they have a better method for arriving at their conclusions. But ultimately, we trust the Word of God. So remember, resources are, are written by fallible human beings. One of my professors in seminary used to say, just because you take a bunch of pieces of paper and put two pieces of cardboard on either side doesn't make it truth. Second reminder, know the difference between an opinion stated as a fact and a position supported with reasons and arguments. That's very important. Revelation 4.1, Jesus tells John, come up here. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rag on dispensationalists for just a minute um, because the classic dispensational interpretation of John 4.1 has been, come up here represents the rapture. 
Boy, that sounds good. And it fits our theology. But the text doesn't say that. What is the text saying? That Jesus says to John, come up here. Now, chronologically, yes, the rapture occurs between uh, Revelation 3 and Revelation 4. But you don't find it from that text. So, just somebody saying, Jesus tells John, come up here, that's the rapture. That doesn't prove anything. You need to show me from the text. And when a resource doesn't show you from the text, then you kind of go, well, you know, love you and we'll see you in heaven, but I'm not going to accept that particular opinion because it's just an opinion. The third reminder, beware of commentaries that imply a low view of Scripture, that call Scripture into question or separate you from so-called original sources. Uh, If you see big capital letters like Q and M and L, uh, referenced as documents, just without, without going into all that detail, those documents don't exist. They're theoretical, and they're meant to separate you from the text of Scripture that the Gospel of Mark actually relies on this unknown document that nobody's ever seen because it doesn't exist. Anything that tries to separate you from Scripture as an original source should be uh, lightly treaded upon. A fourth useful reminder, evaluate a a resource's sense of profound respect for the literal interpretation of Scripture and for the clear acceptance of the historical nature of Bible events. Uh, For me personally, bibliology is very important to me. There can be a, a, a man who disagrees with me and I with him on theological issues, but if his respect for Scripture is profound, then then that disagreement is academic, not particularly spiritual. But when somebody writes in a way and they, they uh, talk about the, for example, the, the quote-unquote synoptic problem. The synoptic problem says that there are contradictions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that have to be dealt with. The synoptic problem is a made-up concept. There are no contradictions. So when somebody starts treating contradictions as if they exist, that book goes in the trash. Because that man has no respect for Scripture and I'm not going to glean anything from him. Maybe I can get a good definition of a Greek word from him because even he can't mess that up. But to interpret a text, no way. I don't want anything to do with that. I want a high, high view of Scripture. One of my professors in seminary, one of the smartest men I've ever met in my life, I mean, I think the dreams that he has are smarter than any waking thought I've ever had. And he began to teach a section on why the Bible is true and how you can know that the Bible is true. And he put up a slide on the PowerPoint and it says, because the Holy Spirit said so. No one needs to prove that the Bible is true. And when somebody begins saying, here's how I'm interpreting this and, and there's some difficulties with this and that that begins to denigrate Scripture, no, just abandon that resource. You need resources that have an incredibly high and lofty view of scripture. Okay, after taking those considerations to heart, you're going to utilize a few helpful resources to supplement your study, and it might even help you refine or correct your interpretation. If it massively corrects your interpretation, then you need to go back and figure out where you went wrong, you know, because something went wrong at, at some place. Okay, the whole point of our study, meditation in the Word of God. I've given you the five steps here once again. And you can read those for yourselves. But let's choose a few of the truths from our interpretation, our information steps. And I want to meditate on them together using the steps I outlined. And we have a few minutes to do this. Specific truth one. 
God chose his own description. God chose his own description. I, I remember distinctly the time and place uh, that I did this particular meditation and I found that this particular truth just exploded with implications. I've given you a few of them here. God chose to describe himself as a shepherd. This is a gentle contrast to the might and power and fearsomeness of God. God has given himself many other designations in scripture. A rock, fortress, shield, a husband. Learning how God describes himself tells me how I'm supposed to think about God. God's description bridges the massive gap between humanity and God. The shepherd description is both earthly and heavenly in nature, isn't it? God makes great efforts to make himself knowable. He doesn't hide his nature, but he describes it in a way that I can know him well. Everybody can figure out what it means to be a shepherd. God providentially had David be a shepherd in his boyhood. And so when God revealed to David that God is his shepherd, his own experience made this meaningful. God chose a designation That is timeless. I don't know if anybody in this room has ever shepherded sheep. If you have, I know there's one who has, but if you you have, you're the exception. But everyone knows what a shepherd is. It's a timeless principle. God chose a designation which implies Christ humbling himself. God had compassion on his people because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Being a shepherd, catch this, is God lowering himself to be with his people. And God's description of himself as a shepherd is is immediately and vitally connected to his care and safety of his sheep. I shall not want. that. This isn't just a cold and objective scientific description of God. It's emotional. It's, it's caring. It's kind. It depicts how he's chosen to relate to his people with his care and his attention. So based on that, how do I examine my own heart? Some questions I ask myself. God's choice of his own designation means he also chose my designation. If God is a shepherd, what am I? A sheep. And he chose that designation. A sheep is to be submissive, dependent, ever looking to the shepherd. How have I enjoyed God as shepherd? The designation of shepherd implies trust. Prayerfully, what areas of my life do I have the most trouble trusting the Lord for? How does the fact that God has worked to bridge the gap between himself and me impact my love for God? God has made himself knowable. How can I take advantage of this revelation of himself to seek to know him more? I already gave you one idea. Find out all the names of God in the Bible and you're going to know God better. What should a genuine deep belief in God as my shepherd create in my first thoughts of each day? My last thoughts of each day. If you said that uh, Psalm 23 represented a day in the life of David, what is his first thought? Yahweh is my shepherd. What is his last thought? I'll dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Personal application. How am I going to apply this to myself? If I truly believe that God is my shepherd, then based on David's example, I should be able to point to the way God has shepherded me. I should be able to point to this. And so I will list ways God has shepherded and led me in my lifetime. Last night, on my way home, I'm about to get on the freeway and somebody who thought that life is short enough as it is um, cut me off and probably missed my front bumper by six inches. And he was going fast. And I just, I just had to laugh going, you know, God is totally sovereign. He knew the exact number of millimeters that that near miss was. It wasn't a near miss. That was God saying, oh, so you're going to practice what you preach? And it literally just made me just laugh my head off as I got on the freeway. God shepherded me. 
He chose that I should be here this morning. For those parts of my life that I have the most trouble believing that Yahweh is my shepherd, I will intentionally increase that trust. For example, if I have trouble believing that Yahweh is my shepherd financially, I will spend time remembering and repeating the fact I shall not want. That's not a promise of wealth. It's just a promise that if he's my shepherd, I will never want for those things that I must have. For this week, I will address God in prayer as my shepherd. How about that? Just choosing to address him as your shepherd. To drive this truth more deeply into my own heart. Since God as shepherd includes the idea of how Christ lowered himself to the earth, I will pray through Philippians 2 with thankfulness for Christ, emptying himself to the point of being my shepherd. And then the prayer based on this fact that God chose his own designation, my shepherd who leads me to the green pastures and quiet waters, thank you for lowering yourself to my level so that I can comprehend you. Thank you for choosing that name for yourself so that I feel safe trusting in you. Help me this day to be a faithful sheep behind my perfect shepherd. There's a second specific truth. Courage in the presence of evil. We did a combined statement from our observations, so that's where this comes from. Implications. David didn't express a hope. He didn't say, I hope to fear no evil. He says, I will fear no evil. It's a, it's a declaration. And if it's a declaration, that means David expects that God will strengthen him to eliminate that fear and experience courage. You notice that courage was not because of the removal of the wilderness. It was not because of the removal of the valley, of the presence of David's enemies. Courage was experienced in all those places. And this is the beauty of courage, that it doesn't depend on your circumstances. The picture of evil in David's presence is given as innocuous and unable to harm him if he's walking with the shepherd in the paths of righteousness. It's, it, it, it's so innocuous My spiritual enemies are so powerless that I think I'll sit down and have a meal with God while I watch the chaos growing around me. Isn't that interesting? Oh, cancer. Well, that's funny. Um, Can you pass the salt, please? I'd like a little more on this that you're serving me. Only by following the shepherd is David given courage. And the implication is that courage cannot be expected by the Christian if the Christian is in a state of perpetual, habitual disobedience. You can't say, I'm going to disobey you, Lord, but please give me courage for my life. And David's presence, David presents almost a surreal situation, sitting at a banquet in the presence of his enemies. The sense of protection when the enemy is so close demonstrates God-given and God-driven courage. Did David ever live this out? You remember the time that uh, he's being chased by Saul and he and another guy, they sneak into the camp and they, they sneak up on Saul and they take his spear and his, his water jug, I believe it was, just to show him that he could have done it. He could have killed him and he didn't do it. Now, God made everybody fall into a deep sleep, but you know what that tells me? That tells me that God responds to courage. He responds to courage. Now, what am I going to ask myself based on this? If I were to be truly honest with myself, what are my biggest fears in this life? If I'm going to be really honest, and I would encourage you to go home to your wife and to talk about that, here are my biggest fears. Pray for me for courage. How do I at times sin to try to avoid dealing with that fear or to eliminate that fear from a fleshly standpoint? I have dealt with Christians 
who their biggest fear is any sort of uncomfortable conversation or, or dealing with sin in their own life with someone else. And so they'll sin 50 times over to avoid that particular one fear. Have I spent significant time in prayer confessing this fear and asking for the courage which David receives in Psalm 23? Remember Hebrews 12, we said this on Sunday. It says, you have not yet uh, resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. Have, have you taken that fear and decided I'm going to fast and pray for three days and think about nothing else but asking God to help me with that fear? Of my most significant fears, what Bible verses can I write or memorize or meditate on to actively battle that fear? How are these continued fears rooted in pride? I didn't say are they rooted in pride. All fears rooted in pride. Which fear is truly at the top of my life and why is it at the top and what evil am I immersed in this world that may cause fear? So how am I going to apply this? I will say aloud to the Lord and write down my top fears. I will face them as real and as in need of the Lord's intervention and help. I will confess any ways that I tend to sin in order to avoid that thing I fear. I will identify any pride that may be at the root of fear. I will ask for prayer from a fellow believer for a period of time concerning this fear. I will confess as sin any anxiety I have over the current world. God is sovereignly in control and I am to live in peace. That's a great example. If, if you're one of those that reads or watches the news and you walk away terrified, well, first of all, quit watching it. And second of all, you need to believe in the sovereignty of God that he wrote that news story because he wrote the circumstances behind it. And how would you pray through this? My mighty protective shepherd, to follow you and yet be plagued by fear betrays an inadequate view of your power and control. For the sake of your glory, help me to trust you in these particular areas of my greatest fears. Help me to face them with prayer, with declarations of truth from Scripture, and with the welcome prayers of my fellow saints in Christ. Help my life to be characterized by spiritual courage and faithfulness. Amen. And I will leave it to you to look at the specific truth number three, the overflowing cup combination, even though that's my favorite one, but we're, we're out of time and you can read through that. I hope that I've convinced you that from Psalm 23 alone, you realize all the meditations I've given you and all the applications are, are just examples. They're just samples. You literally could take a text of Scripture and decide for the next year this is going to filter through my heart and life if you'll do this system. You could meditate on these seemingly endless truths and if you do what the Puritans did, turning that meditation into purposeful application, your study of a given passage now has become surgery on your own, own soul in a way you've never experienced before. And it wasn't just a passive byproduct of study. It was the intended direction all along. That was the whole point. So for our final session this afternoon, I'm going to put it all together. And I'm going to present Psalm 23 to you in the way it meant the most to me with all the study we've done so far. I won't tell you anything you haven't heard already. We're just going to put it together. We've put all the ingredients together and now we're going to make one dish with it. And so we'll do evaluation, presentation, and meditation, but I'm going to do it in a different order, kind of a little bit differently and see how it all comes together. So with that, why don't I close in prayer and then, Brandon, it's all yours after that. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had. I pray for these men. Going all the way back to Thursday evening, I pray, Lord, that 
each of them would look around their home, their workshop, their garage, whatever it takes, and find that one little bit of square footage, just two or three square feet, that this is my place to encounter God and to study the Bible and to meditate upon His Word. I pray, Lord, that You would help these men to make the time, to make the effort, to make the the determination. And most of all, for those who who are married, Lord, I pray that they set a glorious example for their wives and for their children. Wives and children who are thrilled and in awe of a man who sits and opens his Bible and makes notes and grasps your word and prays through how to be a better man of God because of it. Thank you, Lord, for this time. And I pray in advance for our final session in a few hours that that'll be a time of great joy for us as we see all these truths now synthesized into one cohesive thought. And I pray that these men, every single one of them, would experience that on their own with whatever text or pericope they choose, Lord, and that they would see the fruit of this study in their own lives in ways that are just astounding to them. We believe that you would do this and you would bless us because we have asked you to do so. You are our great, tender shepherd, and we ask you to shepherd your sheep toward this process and this um, this project, Lord. And we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.